Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, we are at the end of the book of Judges. This week takes us through the end of chapter 21, which is the last chapter in the book of Judges. But next week will be the capstone final sermon on this particular series. The entirety of the book of Judges has been somewhat, I would say, depressing overall. And regardless of who we look at in the book of Judges, whether it's Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, while they might be great characters and stories for Sunday school classes, the ends of their lives were quite difficult to stomach because there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When we started this series in the book of Judges, I said something at the very beginning that was wrong. I said that the book of Judges doesn't give us any moral commentary about whether or not the actions and activities in the book of Judges were good or right. It just simply records the history. And as I went through the book of Judges preaching, I realized I'm going to have to admit at some point that that was a misunderstanding of the book of Judges. Throughout the entirety of the book, and we'll see it in the very last verse of this chapter, chapter 21, verse 25, that we are given yet again for more than the seventh time moral commentary on what's happening in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges records and declares to us that the events that have taken place over the last 300 to 450 years in the book of Judges was done with man's power, man's might, man's understanding of what is right or wrong, and man's moral code never going to God saying, lead us, guide us, teach us, instruct us, and rule us. The book of Judges tells us time after time that what is happening there in the books and in those stories is skewed. It is not how we are to behave. It is not what we are to look up to. It is what we are to avoid. We are to be better than what these judges were and better than the nation of Israel during the time of these judges. So I want to set that record straight so anyone who ever says, oh, Tim never admits when he's wrong, you just got it, it's on video, it's recorded, done. Put a check mark next to Tim, makes mistakes, and will own up to them when they're really honest mistakes, I'll own up to them. But we saw from the very beginning of this section of chapters, 19, 20, and 21, to end us, one of the most, I, I don't know how to say it, horribly horrific events happening in chapter 19, which led to an all-out civil war in chapter 20, which left the tribe of Benjamin, one of the original tribes, with only 600 people left alive. Out of tens of thousands that were killed in battle, only 600 people from the tribe of Benjamin survived, and those were 600 men who fled to the mountains and hid themselves from the rest of Israel's onslaught of war. And that's where we ended chapter 20. Chapter 21 starts with a really somber assessment of what happened in the nation of Israel over the past three or four days in the context of what's happening in chapter 19, 20, and 21. 
All of this is taking place in cities that you've probably of our area from our perspective all the way from the Goodnight area and City Park all the way up to where 50 is. So that swath of land is kind of where all this is happening in the nation of Israel geographically, just to give you context. And in verses 1 through 7, Israel sits back and they have a time of reflection on what just happened. And it's, it amazes me how these people can be driven to worship and the very next moment they do something outrageous, sinful, should be a huge warning for us that simply gathering together for worship on a Sunday morning doesn't protect us from the temptations of evil and falling to it the very next day. Don't be fooled. Gathering together for worship doesn't guarantee you will live a holy life the next morning. It's important. It's necessary. We're called to do it. It's a joy, but it's not a protection from what the next day will bring. So listen how they assess the situation in the first seven verses, starting in verse 1 of chapter 21 of the book of Judges. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, this is where they all gathered together to go to war against the Benjamites, no one shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So they made a very clear promise to each other, if we go to battle and we have this battle, whatever the outcome is, we don't give our daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. They really want to punish the Benjamites for what they did to the Levite's wife in chapter 19. So they make this oath and swear. And so in verse 2, and the people came together at Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. These are the victors. The victors are not out there singing song and dance, drums ablazing, and just, you know, all exciting, upbeat music. They realize at the end of this, it took not just a spiritual toll on the nation of Israel, but a physical toll on the people of Benjamin in particular. They also lost tens of thousands of people, but not to the point of Benjamin almost being wiped out. Remember, Israel went through the entire land where the Benjamites lived and destroyed and burned down every home, every village, every city, and killed every inhabitant except for the 600 that hid in the mountains. And they're going before the Lord at a place of worship, and they are praising God, lifting up their voices and weeping bitterly. And they said in verse 3, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? I'll tell you why it happened. It happened because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was because there was not a king leading and guiding them. It is because the people who were sworn to lead in worship, the Levites, had abandoned their job, given up. It is because the next generation was not taught, and that next generation did not believe, and they compromised every step of the way. They believed in superstitions. They believed in children's sacrifices. They were crazy in what they adapted into their religious practice that it no longer looked like true Israelite worship. It never looked like what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had done. They had abandoned and forgotten God. That is why they're in that situation today. Don't be surprised. That is why 
They are weeping and wailing before God. How can it be that this one tribe is suffering? It also could be you guys went to war against them and you almost wiped them out. Could be, but then that would be obvious. So the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. They worshiped God in the way that God had instructed them, much like we would gather together and sing songs. They're doing the same thing. They're gathering together to worship. And they're doing so with offerings of sacrifice, especially those peace offerings, which were examples to God of costliness, that I want peace at all costs, so it will cost me a great deal to buy what needs to be bought to be burned and sacrificed before you as a peace offering. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in assembly to the Lord? So they kind of have a moment where they're looking around going, who's not with us? Now they know the tribe of Benjamin isn't there, but they're trying to assess who else is not here during this national day of sacrifice, worship, and mourning. Who isn't among us? And that's going to come important in our next section. For uh, when they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So anyone who did not show up for this, okay, they, understand, they're in the midst of worship. They're in the midst of pouring their hearts out before God and weeping and lamenting the situation that they're in. They are connected to God in worship, and their very next thought is what? Well, whoever's not joining us, we should send them a letter that we are in protest. No. We should tweet their embarrassment. No. Let's kill them. And you're thinking to yourself, how could they do that? They were just in the house of worship. They just started sacrificing their peace offerings, which is identifying to God, we want rest rest uh, restoration. And their next thought is, well, if you haven't joined us, let's kill them. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> they do. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of their daughters for wives? Remember in the book of Judges, we had a sermon that very specifically talked about our oath and our vows before God. That just simply because you say something before God, if it's sinful, you do not follow it. So they made an oath during the preparation of battle in chapter 20, somehow, somewhere along the line, that, hey, if we all gather together and go to war against Benjamin and we whoop them, don't give your daughters to them in marriage. Let them really suffer. They are on the opposite side of the war now, having won the war, and they realize, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done what we did. But we made an oath saying we can't give our daughters to their, to their men in order for them to continue as a tribe. So what happens to them? Israel cannot encourage them, go marry the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Amorites because that's clearly against God's law. So what do we do for them? In comes solution number one verses 8 through 14, and how this can happen on the heels of what they were just doing, worshiping God, praising him, gathering together as a congregation and assembly, how they can do the next thing shocks me. And they said, verse 8, solution one, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that not come up and meet the Lord at Mizpah? That is where they're having worship right now. 
And behold, no one had come out of the camp of Jabesh-Gilead to assemble. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. Now, Jabesh-Gilead was sort of a, a region. It's not a person. It's not a city. It's just sort of this little region that was in the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh being one of the sons. Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph. And they were half-tribes, but they were given inheritance in the land of Israel. That's why you don't find the tribe of Joseph mentioned anywhere in the 12 tribes, because his two sons take that place, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh had a huge, probably the largest part of property within Israel, well north of kind of where Jerusalem was, so way out near 50. Big, open expanse of land. So there was a little area out there that no one came from. No one sent any help, nor did they come and worship after the victory. So they're all taking assessment of who came and who didn't. Remember what we had just talked about in verse 5 and 6 above. And from uh, verse 10, so the congregation sent, that is the people of Israel, sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also, do not spare the women and the little ones. That command is not coming from pagans. That command is coming from the people who just sacrificed to God, saying, we weep bitterly for what has happened in the land of Israel. Do you think this is going to help heal the land? Is this going to help heal the people? No, this is going to solve one of the problems that they created when they went to war against the Benjamites and almost wiped them out, leaving only 600 people alive from the entire tribe. Human solutions, human solutions, human solutions will always compound to problem after problem after problem. Instead of seeking God and saying, whatever oaths and vows we may have made over the last few days, Lord, convict us of that. We will repent of it. Lead us, guide us, teach us. How do we deal with this situation? And I think God would have come up with a really cool situation, a real great solution. He would have said, get rid of your oath and vow and give your daughters to marriage to the tribe of Benjamin. Done. That's all they had to do was ask God for help. But they created a human problem, and they gave a human solution. And their human solution was, let's go kill people. And not just people, not just the warriors from this area, but all the women, kill them. And all the little ones, kill them. And they did. Verse 11, and this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has... Um, Oh, uh, go and strike the inhabitants of, of Gabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword and also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has laid with a male, you shall devote to destruction. So destroy anyone who has ever been married or had relationships. And they fought against, of the, fought against the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead, 400 young virgins whom had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So at the end of this battle, they saved and were able to find 400 young women who were virgins from this tribe of Manasseh up in Gabesh Gilead, and they brought them to the place of worship. Verse 13, 
Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were in the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. Oh, you could have done that so much earlier. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women who had been saved alive of the women of Gebesh Gilead, but they were not enough of them. There were 600 men left, 400 virgins that they had captured and killed their family, brought them. There's still 200 that need wives. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. I like the fact that they had compassion. I like the fact that they were thinking of more than just themselves, but they were looking at the wholeness of God's people and seeing that God's people were suffering. Benjamin had been suffering, though, for probably a hundred or more years beforehand with doing evil in their own eyes. Where was the compassion then? They ignored him. They ignored him until they got a piece of that woman in the mail one day saying, look at what the tribe of Benjamin did. Then they had reached a boiling point, and it was war, not compassion on their mind. But now, as they look at their actions, and maybe we can look at the actions of our lives at times, and see how maybe we overreacted. Maybe we took a sinful route. Maybe we didn't do or act the way we should have. And conviction overwhelms us. And our response to that conviction is to be gracious and compassionate and forgiving when we have the opportunity. I think that's exactly where Israel is at at the point. They realize that their actions have caused great distress among God's people, among God's nation, and they, they try to wrestle with a way of helping that guilt. But again, the step that they take is what? Let's go murder people. Let's go take. Instead of admitting our fault in swearing a non-lawful oath, let's kill people. That's their answer violence. And they still don't have enough. They still need more people. And so solution number two. And at this moment, nothing that Israel does should surprise us. Listen to verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives of those who are left? since all the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said, well, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that the tribe not be blouted out from Israel. Great intentions. I love their thinking of others. What do we do for Benjamin? They got punished severely. There's still 200 men without wives. What do we do for them? And they say in verse 18, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Okay, so they, we've already dealt with that. We know how they could have solved that problem. So they said, here's their solution. Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. So Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant is at the moment in the nation of Israel. And there was a yearly feast happening, obviously. And you would think that a major gathering of worship to God around his Ark would be a safe place for God's people to gather and worship. You would think that. But these are the days of judges where there is no king, no leader, no ruler, no guiding. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. 
You would think that would be a safe place, but no. So Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, the east side of the highway that goes from Bethel to Shechem, the south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, so these are the 600 men that are left, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and then go back to the land of the Benjamins. Do you see what's happening here? The leadership in Israel is saying, we'd love to give you wives, but our hands are tied because we made an oath and we can't break an oath because that would be bad. So tell you what, there's a big celebration happening on Shiloh right now. It's a great celebration of worshiping God around his ark. And guess what? There's going to be ladies and everyone gathering from the town, and they're going to be dancing praises to God. Catch for yourself 200 of those young women that are virgins and then run back to your land. I don't think if I had a year to come up with a solution, that would have been one of them, right? Who saw that coming? (sighs) At least the Benjamites now have been humbled, and maybe they will say, you know what, that might be a great plan, but let's just beseech God to help us deal with this first. You would think maybe the Benjamites have just a, a smidgen of spirituality and compassion at this moment and say, enough bloodshed, it's hard enough finding a woman who will love you and live with you, let alone when you just take them. During a time of worship and praise to God, I'm not quite sure she's going to be sold into loving you that way. That's not how you get a wife. That's not how you get a husband. But then again, there is no king in Israel. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So who's to say that's wrong? God is. We can. But from their perspective, they are so hardened to doing things their own way that any questioning of that is stifled. So you see the scenario. Big worship time happening. Lots of people gathering together. The Benjamites are now hiding in the vineyards, waiting for the uh, young ladies to come out and dance worshipfully for God and enjoy that festival, that religious festival. And verse 22, this is, again, this is the leaders of Israel telling the Benjamites the plan. Go do this. And then when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their numbers from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his own tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. So basically, the Benjamites were told to lay in wait in ambush, grab the ladies, all that they needed to make wives. And if anyone complained, we can honestly say, hey, listen, you didn't give them to them, so you didn't break your vow. Just let them have just let them have it. Let, you know, it's okay. It's for the greater good of everybody if you just let this happen. I can't imagine 
being a father or a brother and being okay with that at all, let alone a Christian. Being, yeah, that's fine. Let them just capture my daughter or my sister. Everyone is trying to protect themselves and justify their own actions. And it almost sounds like at the end of the story, everyone went home to their own area, rebuilt all their land, and they lived happily ever after. Until we get to the last verse. The last verse tells us, in those days there was no king, not in all of Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the moral commentary of the entirety of the book of Judges. And more than once, the author of the book of Judges has to remind us that even though these might be great stories for uh, a Sunday school class like Gideon and Samson and Deborah, always remember that the overarching commentary of everyone who's lived at this time, the entire history of Israel for these hundreds of years, is marked with this one attitude. In the end, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Not what was right in God's eyes, but what was right in their own eyes. And when you follow that to its conclusion, you get chapter 19, 20, and 21. The epitome of self-righteousness, self-importance, self-indulgence, self-rule. And when there is self-rule, there is really no rule at all because everyone's doing their own thing, their own way, and it is pure chaos in a family, in a culture, in a nation, in a city, in the world. There is no hope for a person, a family, or a city, or a nation if they are left to their own definitions of what good and evil is. When you are left to your own definitions, who is to say your definition is righter than mine? There isn't. God's definition, his holiness, his rightness, always directs his people not to do the easy thing, sometimes to do the very hard thing, but it will always be the right thing. And if anything, the book of Judges teaches us that there is no depth, <laughs> no depth or extent to which a sinful human nature will sink unless God restrains them or intervenes. Left to their own devices, it can lead to the ruin of an entire nation. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 20, what were the Israelites doing? Worshiping God joining with one heart, one mind, one soul, one voice, praises and sacrifices. 
From all outward appearances, they looked religious. Right? They played the game. But their heart was far off the prize of a Messiah, of a God who loved them and brought them into his family. In Hebrews chapter 12, the first few verses, the writer of Hebrews says, Now therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that is the Old Testament from our perspective, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our focus. That is our attention grabber, Christ. Christ is the one who gathers our attention and our focus when we are in everyday life situations of doom and gloom or we're at moments of great worship and praise. No matter our situation, he and he alone must remain the object and fixation of all of our hopes, dreams, passions, wants, desires, and expectations in this life. It's him. He is our focus. And if he is indeed our focus, then when we are faced with weighty matters of who marries my son or who doesn't marry my daughter and all those life decisions, they become not a burden, but they become a joy to follow God's direction. And we... You see, if Christ is not that focus in our lives, then I know for a guarantee, a guarantee, that the history of what happened in the days of Judges will become your present reality. Maybe not as a nation, but as a person. So it becomes even more important that we align our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, our expectations, our hopes with his, that we become locked to him. And that's what it means to look unto Jesus or to have your eyes turned to him. It means to be locked on him. Now, as the band comes up and leads us in this last song, we've sung this several times before, but there is not a better song that locks our attention into what God has done through Christ. Let this not just be a song you sing for one day and then live the rest of the week to yourself, but let it be a song that defines who you trust in, who you get guidance from, who leads you, who's your king. It's either going to be yourself or another person, or it's going to be God. And this song elevates our thoughts and our praise that he would be our king. Let's close in prayer as you stand. 
Father, we're grateful for your eternal glory and majesty in our lives, for revealing to us through your word the works of your people, how to follow them and how not to follow them. Help us, Father, to be ruled and reigned by you, our King, that we might resist doing what is good and evil in our own eyes. Thank you, Father, for the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.